0: Good morning, good morning. Let's give it up for those drummers one more time. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) Thank you so much for making it here this morning. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Holly and I serve with our Celebrate Recovery ministry. Okay, so there's this thing that Christians do on Easter where one person says to another, he is risen because today we're celebrating that Jesus rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And then the other person responds with, he is risen indeed. So I think it will be kind of cool if we keep up tradition and do this tag team response thingy. What do you guys think? Let's do this, right? Okay. I'm going to say, He is risen, and then you guys say, He is risen indeed, okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. he is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you so much. Fantastic. If this is your first time it does at Desert Springs Bible Church, we are so glad that you're here today. We designed today's service with you in mind. I know that coming to a church for the first time can be somewhat disconcerting and awkward. I remember when my mom would drag me to church and I would have to sit through service, or rather, lean over on her lap and fall asleep. And at some point, I would be yanked back awake to stand and sing. And I knew that when the singing started, that meant service was almost over and lunch was a-coming. But there still is the question of, why do we sing anyway? Perhaps some of you have that same question, and are wondering, what's the big deal about Easter, and why are these crazy people singing, and in fact, sing every week? Well, today we have structured today's service a little bit differently in order to answer that very question. A few folks from our church are going to talk about some of the big reasons why we sing at Easter, and then our amazing band will actually lead us in song, imagine that. So without any further ado, let's get this party started.
1: That's embarrassing. Superstition! (laughs) Superstition is defined as a belief or notion that's not based on reason or knowledge. A belief or notion that's not based on reason or knowledge. And on this day of all days, we have to ask ourselves the question is the resurrection based on reason? Is it something that we can explore and investigate? Or, like some believe, are we supposed to check our minds at the door? Is believing in the resurrection just superstition, or is there more to it? And we believe as a church family, like all Christians around the world, that God has created us with a mind, an intellect, with curiosity, and the capacities to use our mind and our intellect to explore what's true, to explore the universe, and to find what truly is real and authentic. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we find that the Gospels themselves are written towards this end. It's not just blind belief. It's a reasonable engagement with reality. In fact, uh, we can put it here up on the screen. And so this is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and it goes like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, check that word, eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The Gospel of Luke is an account of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his teaching, but also his death, burial, and resurrection. And he starts off the Gospel of Luke. This dude named Luke is writing to somebody named Theophilus, and he says, the reason I'm writing this Gospel is because I've been investigating this for some time, I'm gonna to put together an orderly account so that you can have certainty of the things that have happened. This isn't blind belief. This isn't superstition. This is a belief that hinges on fact. All of Christianity hinges on fact, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. If Jesus has not risen from the grave, then this is stupid. So there's this thing that people do sometimes in church where they say amen if they agree with something. <laughs> and so let's try that one more time. Okay, just, I'm just tossing you a softball here. <clears throat> you ready? Here we go. If Jesus is not risen from the dead in actual fact, then all of this is stupid. Amen. Okay, Good. I mean, the fact that we would be gathering together to sing to a figment of our imagination or some good feeling, the fact that we would say things like, He is risen, risen indeed, and that would just be some trite uh, statement that we would make towards one another, that's completely ridiculous. This is stupid. There is no hope if Christ is not raised. But if Christ is raised, then everything changes. And church and singing and praying, it all takes on fundamentally different meaning, new deep meaning. In 1 Corinthians, you don't have to keep doing that. (laughs) Okay, I mean, if if it's really good, you can do it, but don't do it for me, all right? There's evidence for the resurrection and their evidence means something. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6, we'll put it up on the screen. This is another book of the Bible, but it's also a letter written from a dude named Paul to some other people, and it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That you have, uh, then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What you have here are eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, that it is of first importance that we have the resurrection of Christ in the forefront of our minds. If you're an intellectual person, or if you're a person with intellect or curiosity, one of the first things that you should use that intellect and curiosity to engage with is, is the resurrection legitimate or not? Because if it's not legitimate, this is all stupid, we should go home. If it, yeah, see, there we go. A lot of us are like, see, Grandma, I told you you shouldn't have brought me here. So... No, I get it. It happened to me too. So if it is true, then, then it fundamentally shapes our world. As a follower of Christ, I, fu- I believe that it does fundamentally change our world. And there are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Also, the earliest Christians believed in the resurrection. It wasn't a legend or something that they made up afterwards. In fact, we have one of the manuscripts here of 1 Corinthians. 15, uh, 1, Corinthians. This is, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest Christian documents that we have. This is a picture of one of the manuscripts, which tells us this. It was written within just a few years after the resurrection of Christ, which means that the resurrection is not uh, some sort of legend that was added to Jesus or uh, by other people. And moreover, the church has been founded on it. The Apostles' Creed, uh, some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. At the very center of the Apostles' Creed is this, that on the third day he rose again from the dead. All Christians everywhere believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you and I are left then with the awkward circumstance of trying to explain away this whole Jesus thing if we do not believe in the resurrection. And some of us will say things like, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. I don't believe in the resurrection, but he was just a good teacher. If Jesus was just a good teacher, if you think that, I don't think you're reading the teachings of Jesus. So check this out. Jesus said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody like that one? Yeah, until you have to do it. <laughs> right? Love your, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Isn't that nice? All of us are like, that's good, that's a good teaching. What about like, uh, you guys are all dead in your sins? And apart from a miraculous work of God, like, namely, my death, burial, and resurrection, you're all going to hell, and so, therefore, I will take on flesh, I will become God in flesh, I will die, and three days later, I will rise from the grave. And if he didn't rise from the grave, is he still a good teacher? Now, if he didn't rise from the grave, even though he said, you kill me three days later, I'm gonna rise, if he didn't rise from the grave, he's nuts, or he's a liar. You can't say Jesus is a good teacher if he doesn't rise from the grave because half the stuff he talked about was the fact he was going to rise from the grave. But if Jesus has risen from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, then we have life and life abundant in him. And moreover, there are many of us who say, well, I just believe Jesus is a literary figure. Okay, so check this out. Um, You guys want to have a little fun? Okay, hold on. Um, I want to be clear. Not actual fun, just church fun. We all know there's a difference between real fun and church fun, right? Amen. Okay, right? Okay, thank you. you see, now we're, okay, we're, we're together, right? So when people are like, hey, how was church? You'd be like, well, it's fun. They understand not real fun, just church fun. So let's have a little church fun, shall we? So uh, imagine, if you will, uh, the most powerful dominant figure in all of literature or human history outside of the Bible. The most dominant powerful figures in all of human his, uh, history in literature uh, in history or literature outside the Bible, who would be some of those people? It could be fictional or non-fictional. Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great. perfect, powerful, dominant. What else we got? Wait, we got what? what? Hitler. Hitler? Yeah. What do we got? We got Superman. Nobody said Spider-Man. <laughs> right. We got Superman. We got Wonder Woman. Okay. Now I want you to think about another category of person. I want you to think about the most meek, the most humble, the most tender people. Uh, Now, by the way, those people generally don't make the headlines, so I'll just fill it in for you. What do we got? We got uh, Mother Teresa. We got Gandhi, right? We got a couple other people that some of us don't really know about. Okay, so you have the most dominant, right, powerful people, and then you have the most humble people. So (laughs) check this out. Jesus fits both categories. Jesus is, the scriptures have Jesus, the scriptures say about Jesus that he holds the universe together with the word of his power. That he is the most dominant, powerful figure known to mankind. That everything that exists, exists in and through Jesus. And then secondarily, you have in Jesus these type of statements. That he is a servant to all. That he has given his life as a ransom for many. That he is the lamb who was slain. You have someone who is compassionate, meek, and mild. And so, you have in Jesus the most complex, nuanced figure known to all of human history. Either... Christ is who he says he is, and he rose from the dead. And so all this is legitimate. Or a bunch of Galilean fishermen 2,000 years ago devised the most convoluted, complex, nuanced figure known to, in all of literature or human history up until that point in time and since. Let me say that one more time. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or some Galilean fishermen devised out of nothing the most Complex, nuanced figure known to all of mankind in all of human history or literature. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or those were some really good authors. <laughs> Either way, you are left with this issue. You have to use your intellect and your mind to engage with the question of is the resurrection legitimate? Is all this singing legitimate? Is all of this founded in reality? Christians since the very beginning of the church has based their very existence on this truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave and it has shaped human history.
2: Thank you. I know it's for them. 2,000 years ago, human history was radically and dramatically changed when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But you know, that was not good news for everyone. In fact, there were some who didn't believe it at all and saw it was a threat. There was a young rabbi whose name was Saul from a place called Tarsus. And he saw this as a threat to his entire belief system and his way of life. So he dedicated his life to eradicating this new cult called Christianity. He imprisoned Christians, and he even participated in the execution of some others. He was one of the primary persecutors of the church. Until the day, that Saul met the risen Christ on his way to Damascus. And then his life radically and irretrievably was changed. He changed his name, but more importantly, he changed his actions and became a, a preacher of the good news. Where he would go from places to places around the Mediterranean, he would tell men and women and anyone that would listen that they could have their sins forgiven. They could be ensured that they would spend eternity with God, with Christ, and with those who had gone before if they would put their faith in the death of Christ on the cross for their sins and his resurrection from the dead. So many people began to follow him, that churches were formed, and the news began to spread like wildfire, and communities were transformed with the good news of Jesus Christ. So much so that in the the, the book of Acts, it speaks of these individuals as men who turned the world upside down. Well, how could they turn the world upside down? Because people had had this view of death, life after death, for a long time. The difference was now there was a ground, there was a reason for believing that as Jesus physically was raised from the dead, there was hope that that same resurrection power could operate for others that is so personal as well as powerful I know for my wife Emily and for me this time of year it's especially important because it was on April the 14th 32 years ago that she and I received the call that her dad had massive intercranial bleeding and died the belief of a resurrection the belief of a reunion is so important to us in being able to cope with that even now this many years later for me to get the call that that my sister at 32 had died in her sleep for no apparent reason. And now when we get together for family reunions, she is conspicuously absent in the photographs. But to know that we'll see her again, that we'll be together again, not just wishful thinking, but based on the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. But you know, Christians really have been faulted over the years faulted for being so heavenly minded that were of no earthly good. History paints a very different picture than that. For you see Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel, that's true, but he also sent them out to heal all manner of diseases. He was cared about people's physical well-being as well as their spiritual well-being. And as they went forth in his power, They wanted to not just live with Jesus in heaven, they wanted to live like Jesus on earth. And that makes all the difference in the world. Well, listen, don't just take my word for it. I want you to listen to a video that's done of an interview of an outstanding New Testament scholar whose name is N.T. Wright, as he talks with another amazing
3: theologian by the name of Stephen Colbert. But I mean, the whole point about this is that most Christians uh, have this vague idea of going to heaven as something that you know, may No, mine's or, very specific.
1: Yeah. You get a harp and, and I'll have a yeah. mint julep and I'll ask and Ronald
3: Reagan questions. Right, and and, uh, and you'll be sitting there like that guy on the Far Side cartoon saying, gee, I wish I brought a magazine it's so boring. I mean, that's, that's the image a lot of people have of it. But the point in the New Testament is that there's this big surprise that heaven is just phase one and then there's a further thing further down the track, which is what the Bible calls new heavens and new earth. So it's like, like the, the New Jerusalem. Well, the New Jerusalem, but at the end of the Bible, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth so that heaven and earth get joined and made over. And, and we're made over too, right? Like made, we, yeah. we,
1: have, we have physical perfection along with our spiritual perfection. Uh,
3: the, the resurrection is what you get in order to inhabit this new world. Uh, if God is gonna do that to the whole creation at the end of time, and if that began with Jesus, then we now get to share in doing bits that are going to turn into the new creation. In 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 other words, stuff like feeding the hungry and looking after the poor. It's things like this. It's feeding the hungry and looking after
2: the poor. You see, we are destined for heaven if we have a faith in Jesus, but this is not heaven. But we are to live and to work in such a fashion that we get glimpses of heaven and the caring for those that are needy. This is appropriate because this is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples and he taught his followers. He said, look, if you see someone that's thirsty, give them a cup of water. If you see someone that's hungry, give them something to eat. If you see someone that doesn't have clothes on their back, clothe them. If you know of someone that's in prison, go and see them. And the reason he gave is recorded in Matthew 25. He says, For as often as you do this to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples and one of his closest friends, actually, on this earth, wrote a book, 1 John, and he says in 1 John 3, 17 and following these words, But if anyone has this world's goods and see his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? my little children let us not love in word or talk but indeed and in truth and then James the brother of Jesus says this this is true religion and undefiled and that's to visit or care for the widows and the orphans in the day of their distress and their time of need that's what was taught by Jesus that was taught by his followers so it makes sense that individuals who were Christ's followers would do this. A historic example of this took place in the second and third century where there were a series of horrible plagues, perhaps smallpox or measles, for which there was no end.
1: In- Hi, hey, Pastor
2: Rick. Hi, Courtney. Oh, oh, Courtney and I know each other because we've done some missions trips together and other stuff, but this is Courtney and Anthony and Haley, and they're some of our amazing youth workers. Let's give them a round of applause. What do you say? Okay, so now, Courtney, I'm kind of doing something here. What's up?
4: So I heard you talking about Christians and how they would often help people when bad stuff happened, like the plague. And we thought maybe we could act something out for you. What do you think?
2: I think it's a good idea. What do you all think? Okay, I I would take that as a yes, so go for it.
4: I'll be the narrator. A long time ago, way back in the day, like before the 90s, this is way, way back in the day, people were doing stuff, normal stuff, like working, working really hard with hammers, really big hammers, like the biggest hammer you could ever imagine, and buying groceries, Lots and lots of groceries. I mean, like Costco-level grocery shopping. (laughs) And having parties. Showing off their best dance moves at this amazing party. (laughs) Like the robot. And the Macarena. And posting selfies on Facebook. It's all about the angles, guys. It's all about the angle. Then, one day, the plague came to town. a lot of people got sick first it started with a fever a really really bad fever then came the nausea really really bad nausea and some people would even pass out and and some people would even pass out just just pass out already Everyone who could would run away, but many Christians would stay and help those who were sick because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in an eternal life, the end. So, Pastor Rick, I'm pretty sure that's exactly, exactly how it went down. Yeah. Uh,
2: well, kind of. But regardless, you guys did an awesome job. Can you give them a round of applause? Thank you. Well, that overly dramatic presentation <laughs> may have had some non-historical facts in it, but it is grounded in reality. Matter of fact, I'd like to read to you a letter that comes from a person whose name is Dionysius, and he was an archbishop in Alexandria and northern Africa. And he wrote this letter in 2060 A.D. about the way that Christians cared for those who were afflicted by the plague. Listen to what he says. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Why would they do that? Because the presence, the spirit of the resurrected Christ lived in them and empowered them. They wanted to live like Jesus. And that's what they did. They sacrificed themselves for others. You know, over the centuries, wherever men and women have gone forth proclaiming the good news of Jesus, they have also done other things to help those people physically and emotionally. For instance, they would share the gospel, but they also healed diseases, dispensed medicine, built hospitals, dug wells where clean water could be given they taught people to read they taught them to write in their own language and established schools for the benefit of all who would come regardless of their faith social reforms were enacted based on biblical truth justice was done civil rights were established and and given to others The plight and the position of women and children and ethnic minorities was raised because of their worth and dignity of people who were created in the image of God. There were individuals such as Christian leaders like John Wesley who worked tirelessly to enact prison reform in Great Britain. There were other Christian politicians like William Wilberforce who who worked for his entire life to eradicate slavery From the British Empire and was able by God's grace to do that before his death. In more recent years, following the tragic civil war and AIDS pandemic that swept over the African country of Uganda like a tidal wave, there were individuals who were there, like Gary and Marilyn Skinner, missionaries who were there and saw the two million orphans as their responsibility, not the responsibility of the government. So they began to do something and they started a group called Watoto Children's Ministry and their vision is to raise up the new leadership of that country from the street children. That's why we as a church here at Desert Springs think it's important and invest in the whole area of caring for people's physical and emotional needs as well as their spiritual needs. That's why we want to help men and women who are seeking to survive the horror and the trauma of abuse of all forms through Mending the Soul groups. That's why we want to help individuals who are dealing with the hurts and the hassles and the the habits that they have through abuse of different substances through Celebrate Recovery. That's why we want to be involved in feeding children in our community through partnering with groups like Kitchen on the Street. That's why we want to strengthen marriages by providing classes and training in marriage and in family. That's why we engage in the community and with the schools to do things with partners that are here to improve our community through initiatives like Rock the Block. And it's not just here, it's around the world. It's why we have short-term missionary teams that go out to places like Africa, Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Mexico. We have a trip coming up, but rather than let me tell you, the ones who can better say that are the ones who are going on the trip and who are sponsoring this, look at the video screen and listen to what they have to say about what's coming up. I'm
0: Shiloh. I'm
2: Leah. And I'm Mike. And we would love to have you join us on our upcoming mission trip to Rocky Point, Mexico. This trip will be a two-day, one-night trip Where on Saturday, we will be painting a couple of the houses that we've built in the past. And then on Sunday morning, we'll attend church with the community, serve a meal to everybody, and then we'll do some arts and crafts and play soccer with the kids.
0: My favorite part of the trip is seeing all the people that I've met over the years going down there. I mean, I have so many friends down there, and I love seeing them. But my favorite part is when I get to work with the kids. We're going to be doing crafts with them. It doesn't matter if I can't speak their language. I can share the gospel through the crafts as we're doing them together and show my love to them just by being there. I'm really excited about this trip. I hope you'll join us, and I hope you'll join us in November for our house build trip where we'll be building a home for a family in need. This is a great way for us to show God's love by meeting people's needs.
2: So we hope you'll join us. Check out the website for more information.
1: Holly asked us a moment ago to consider why it is that we're here singing. Why would we sing? And this is why. Because no one else, no prophet, no priest, no king, no teacher, no one else has turned the world upside down like Jesus has. God in the flesh has given his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has given his life for you. He was crucified at the hands of his own creation, and they buried him. And three days later, just like he said, he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan's sin and death. This is the gospel and the good news. And Jesus calls us to repent from our sin, to turn from our sin, and to believe in that gospel, in that good news. That is one option for each of us, to turn from our sin, to turn from self-idolatry, to turn from making ourselves the center of the universe, and to turn to Jesus, recognizing that He is the center of the universe, that we are His creation, and that we have been redeemed by Him. Or the other option is that we turn from Jesus, we turn from God, we turn to ourselves, And we desperately search and seek to find meaning, dignity, worth, value, love, joy, peace, and flourishing in something, in anything else. You see, if we do not find those things in Jesus, in our creator, then we will look to things like sex, money, power, prestige. We will try to find anything that will fill us They will answer the question, who am I and why am I here? And we will grasp and we will search and we will long for something to define us. What defines you today? What is it that you look to for peace, for joy, for flourishing? What reality are you a part of? As you apply your mind, your intellect, your curiosity, what is it that you're clinging to to give ultimate hope? What is your foundation? 1 Corinthians 15, we had it up on the screen a moment ago. I'll ask if we can have it up again. It reminds us that Christ died for our sins and that was raised again on the third day. If that is a hoax, this is stupid. If that is real, if that is true, then all of life changes. It's not anything in the middle. It can't be. The resurrection can't be in the middle. It's either dumb and should be discarded or it's fundamentally true and our life is defined by it. Many of us will look to something else to give our life meaning and value. Uh, Many of us will look to something else to justify our existence. And many people are ascribing, many of us here today are believing in the good enough gospel. You all know about the good enough gospel? Here's the good enough gospel. You go to a neighbor, you go to a friend, you go to a family member, you say, hey, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And in Phoenix, they would say, heaven, right? Unless they're from Seattle wearing a Metallica t-shirt, they'd be like, hell, ah, right? <laughs> heaven, hmm? right? Right? I got you, Lionel. (laughs) Yeah, heaven, right? I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, great. You're going to go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. Great. You're a good person. That's awesome. Good. I'm glad. So uh, I just want to encourage you to consider and apply your logic and your reason and your, your curiosity to that statement, I'm a good person. You might be believing in the good enough gospel that if I'm just good enough, then God will love you. If I'm just a good enough person, then my existence is meaningful. Then I'm somebody. I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person like Jim. Right? Most of us, by the way, when we say I'm a good person, we usually follow it up with, well, I'm not super good, but at least I'm not as bad as Jim down the street who won't mow his lawn. Come on, bro. Right, we're usually we're usually stuck in this pattern of uh, judging ourselves based on how bad others are. We say, "I'm a good person." So, if you're a good person, I just want to encourage you to consider how just awful and how much despair is in that gospel—the good enough gospel. Let me push it on you a little bit. So, uh, I brought with me today a prop. It's my moral thermometer. I don't know if you guys can see my moral thermometer. It's right here. In fact, I'm going to ask Lionel to help me. Uh, We're going to start at the bottom with my moral thermometer, and we're going to bring it all the way up. Here we go. (laughs) You all see my moral thermometer here? My moral thermometer uh, will show you at the top, good, and at the bottom, evil. Evil. So at the top, yeah, good. So we got good at the top and evil at the bottom. Here's, here's your moral thermometer. You're saying you're a good person? Good. We got good and we got bad. We got evil. So at the top, we got, what do we got? We got Mother Teresa. Yeah, we got Mother Teresa. We'll put Mother Teresa up in the top. She's like a, one of the best people that ever lived. There she is, Mother Teresa, squarely in first place on the good person moral thermometer. Then down at the bottom, we got a variety of characters. What do we got? We got Hitler. We got Stalin. We got Edie Amin. We got Garth Brooks. We got them all down here. We got them all down here squarely on the bottom. He has friends in low places, so we're down here at the bottom. So we got, uh, on the, my moral thermometer here, we got good people like Mother Teresa. Down at the bottom, bad people who like Hitler. Okay, great, so where are you, good person? Well, certainly, <laughs> certainly, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, right? We're not that good. Uh, so, you know, I'm a few rungs down from Mother Teresa. I'm certainly not as bad as Hitler, so maybe you put me, what, just a little bit above the middle. Right? You guys all comfortable being roughly in the middle of this moral thermometer? Where do you you want to be? You want to be kind of in here? Right? If you just were to just take a moment and take stock of the last week, all the words that came out of your mouth and all the thoughts that you thunk, uh, and then maybe judge yourself where you might be like squarely in the middle, right? It's like the Dallas Cowboys, squarely in the middle. And um, (laughs) so you're just in the comfortable middle. Great. Okay, so that's where you are. You're a good person. That's awesome. So where's the line? Where's the cutoff? Where's the good person, bad person cutoff? Well, most of us would say, you know, again, Jim, we're a few rungs down, and that's the line, right? A few, like, the line between good and evil is always a few rungs down on the moral thermometer uh, beneath me. And if I've had an especially difficult week, that, that line is going to go down even further, right? <laughs> right? Are, are we hanging? Great. So, you're a good person on the moral thermometer. You've said it's just underneath me. And I just want to encourage you. Okay, so if you drew that line underneath you, and I'm going to I'm going to speak millennial now. That's soups judgy. That's soups judgy or to put it another way, that's very judgmental. Why? Because you just condemned everyone who you think doesn't add up to your standard of righteousness. You just you literally just condemned them all as being evil people. Congratulations. You've also declared yourself to be righteous before the universe. And I just want to ask, when you drew that line, with what cosmic perspective and eternally righteous judgment did you make that call? Can I ask you another question? Are you equipped? Are you capable of making that decision, who gets in to the good club and who's in the evil club, and I'll just prove it to you. Have you ever changed your mind? Then you're not equipped to make that eternal judgment call, because you might change your mind. And so check this out: that good enough gospel, that I'm just I'm a good enough person if I just try hard, if I can just be good enough. That's despair, friends. That moral treadmill. You're never going to win that race. And so Jesus, that good teacher y'all were telling me about a minute ago, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's like, Mother Teresa ain't on the top of the moral thermometer. I am. Jesus comes into the picture and he says, no, no, no. you got to have my righteousness. you got to be as righteous as I am in order to be in the good person, which means there's only ever been one good person. Jesus. And he says, everybody else, everybody else, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Jesus tells us. He teaches us in the scriptures. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That that you don't add up. And there's a harsh cutoff. Either you're as righteous as Jesus, and therefore a good person, or you're not, and therefore you're condemned. Likely by your own judgment. Much less the judgment of God. And this is despair. This good enough gospel is despair. And so here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though you and I, the created beings, rebelled against God, turned from God, and turned to our own way, he, in order to make that right and to bring about reconciliation, far from just eliminating all of us, which he could have easily done, he took on flesh, became one of us, and took his own medicine. He died at the hands of his own creation. He was scoffed, beaten, mocked, shamed, and crucified at the hands of his own creation. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death. Friends, do you believe? If you believe, today you have something to sing about.
5: Imagine being the superhero of your own life. Imagine being the best player on the team, the triumphant king of the story. When I was a kid, I thought this was the goal. I read the Bible this way. I believed I was the complete and greater David. And my homework, the bullies at school, the, the, the poverty, the negativity, the, the entire world was my Goliath. I thought I was the complete and greater Adam and that one day God would introduce me to my Eve and we would be free from our parents and, and, and free from rules and free to love each other in a perfect world. I thought I was the complete and greater Bible character that I heard about in Sunday school. So all my life, um, they told me I could be anything I wanted to be and if I dreamed it and saw it and worked hard enough, I could make it. So, when I read the first half of the Bible, I made it read into this narrative of meism and moralistic humanism a higher, more spiritual version of an intellectually motivating story that seemed right for me but then something happened I read John chapter 1 and listen to how John rejected the seat that only our Savior could feel John the baptizer uh, said there is only one one complete and greater priest prophet and King there's only one greater than us all and the first half of the Bible actually points and screams his name Jesus I really realized that in Luke 24, 27, Jesus was and is the point of scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus was and is the point of scripture. So there are two clear options here and you have to decide for yourself. Is the Bible about you and what you must do or is the Bible about Jesus and what he has done? I don't know about you, but I choose the latter. I choose that Jesus is the complete and greater David who has defeated the biggest Goliath ever and his victory is our victory. Jesus is the complete and greater Adam who actually passed the test in the garden. I choose that Jesus is the complete and greater Abraham who left his beautiful, holy and happy home in heaven in order to enter into a helpless void to help you and I. Jesus is the complete and greater Isaac, who was not only offered up on the mountain, but was literally sacrificed, shedding his blood for your and my sin. Jesus is the complete and greater Jacob, who wrestled taking the blow of justice so we can experience never ending grace. He is the complete and greater Jonah, who threw himself into the storm, only to be swallowed up in darkness for three days and three nights, but early, Sunday morning resurrected from the grave he is the complete and greater Passover lamb Jesus is the complete suffering servant Jesus is the complete life bread rose of Sharon real in the middle of the wheel he is the gate the door the way the truth and the life he is our sacrifice the Bible teaches us that he's our peace priest prophet and King the Bible is not about you it's about Jesus and so we gather we sacrifice we park we plan we push we hustle we remember we praise we sing about our best player the superhero of all superheroes we are reminded that he's the king of kings he's the lord of lords if you can hear me say jesus